podcast one production. Imagine a company that had no employees, not a single one. No employees and no executives. No one to manage, so no need for managers. No executives and no board of directors. After all, if there are no executives, who would the board give direction to? No employees, no managers, no directors, just software. Imagine a company that was just a computer program. Now, this isn't a tiny computer program. This is over 6,000 lines of computer code. That's a substantial program. That program, it does the work of the board of directors. It listens to shareholders. It responds to their needs. It gives the shareholders a voice in the operation of the corporation. And it does all of that without any human intervention. So what does this corporation do? It's an investment firm, venture capital. Venture capital, as it's developed over the last 50 years, is a thoroughly human business. A firm that wants capital, well, it contacts one of the partners in the venture capital firm and it pitches them on the viability of their business and why an investment in their business will return 10 or 100 fold on the firm's investment. It's a confidence game helped along by personal contacts and reputation and track record and all the other signs that an individual and their business is a worthwhile risk. All of that is as human as a handshake or a pat on the back. The software venture capital fund, it does things a bit differently. Businesses submit their business proposals via email. And those proposals are then available for all of the shareholders in the venture capital investment firm. Each of them can read those proposals, comment on them, and argue persuasively why one firm should be funded and another should not. And then the shareholders vote. A straight majority and the firm receives funding. Anything less, they're out of luck. It's all very straightforward, very democratic, and very different from any other venture capital firm. This software firm, it promised a pure, straightforward form of digital capitalism, removing all of the middlemen and all of their fees. Instead, all of the profits would flow directly Back to shareholders because there weren't any other pockets that needed to be filled. It seemed perfect, an ideal vision of how corporations would work in the future. It was autonomous. It ran itself without human intervention. It was distributed. Every shareholder had access to all of the information and could vote on every decision. This distributed autonomous organization, or DAO, was something we'd never seen before. We've heard of driverless cars, but driverless companies? And yet the idea, because it was so pure, such a perfect realization of software, it garnered enormous support. The creators of the Dow published a white paper and raised nearly $200 million in investment capital from its shareholders. This was back in June of 2016. And with that huge investment fundraise, they turned the Dow on. Within hours, it had all gone terribly wrong. Hello, I'm 
Mark Pesci, and welcome to the fifth episode of Cryptonomics, a series dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, will transform our entire world. Along the way, we'll learn what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We'll speak to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We'll learn how things work, why they work, and when they don't. By the time we're finished, you should understand enough to make your own investment calls. You'll have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency investment. Is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? We can't answer those questions for you, but you'll learn which questions you need to ask and the sorts of answers you'll want to receive. The cryptocurrencies, they're only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain isn't even a decade old, and it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, including gambling. And it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. And that's why we're calling this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall in the price of Bitcoin, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that will roll over banks, stock markets, even nations. There's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrencies. Some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business and it will force businesses as old and established as gambling to make way for it. When we come back, we'll dig into the newest frontier of cryptocurrencies, the blending of cryptocurrencies and computer code. Welcome back to the fifth episode of Cryptonomics, where we're taking a look at the marriage of money and logic. Economists like us to believe that money is always spent rationally, invested rationally, all of it managed as logically as if by any Vulcan, and nothing could be further from the truth. Money makes us crazy almost immediately. Nothing can make a person crazy faster than money. And since we're the ones putting money to work, we rarely spend it rationally or invest it rationally. But all of that's about to change. Money is getting a mind of its own. To understand why, we need to look back at the evolution of the web. Do you remember the first time you used the web? If you're over 40 years old, you likely used the web when it was still very young and very immature. See photos of those old web pages. They make us wince a bit. We're embarrassed by them. They look old-fashioned. They look obsolete. But the web isn't a product, it's a process. The web of 1993, that's when I started using it. Well, that could do little more than put text and images together on a page. Even images were a bit of an ask. There were a lot of purely text-based web pages back then because people accessed the internet over dial-up connections that might take 30 seconds to download even a small image. Now, things are different today. We have faster computers, we have faster connections, we know how to make images fly across the internet. But the web itself, the web is actually different as well. It's not just text and images. There's quite a bit of information that tells a web page how to look when it's displayed on the screen of a laptop or a tablet 
or a smartphone. And without that information, the web would never look quite right unless you viewed it on exactly the same computer that the website creator used. Also, very early on, web browsers added the capability to load and run tiny computer programs embedded within the web pages themselves. Those little programs could talk to the web page. They could change what the web page displayed. They could switch the language from Japanese to English. They could respond to a click of the mouse or some other very simple sorts of things. Now, that simple computer language, which is known as JavaScript, it turned every web page into a potential computer program, and that inspired a lot of creativity. It also inspired a lot of devilry. A program can be used to make a web page more interactive, or it can be used to steal a password that's been typed in to access your bank account. Now, not long after JavaScript became a feature of web pages, it became clear that some folks were up to no good with it. So what to do? Well, you could just turn JavaScript off, but then you'd lose all those cool interactive features. Instead, what's happened is we spent the last 20 years learning all of the ways that bad actors can do bad things with JavaScript, and we've been putting that learning back into the design of JavaScript. And now when your web pages load, and nearly every web page has some JavaScript in it these days, when those web pages load, they run in something known as a sandbox. And like a child's sandbox, it's a great place to play without getting your sand over everything else. And so the web page can run the JavaScript program, but that program can't touch any other part of your computer. It can't even touch another web page that you have open in your browser. It sits in its own world. It sits inside its sandbox. Oh, and the inventor of JavaScript, his name is Brendan Eich. He invented JavaScript back in 1995, and two years ago he invented something else. The basic attention token. Because JavaScript made it possible for the web to track and profile you. And Ike knows that's partially on him. The basic attention token exists to fix some of the problems that JavaScript made possible. It's a different kind of sandbox for a different kind of problem. Now, the web has taught us a lot about how to make computers more secure against attack because so many people have tried to attack it. And that has meant that we feel comfortable using the web to conduct our banking and other sorts of secure transactions. It also means that we have a substantial body of knowledge that we can put to work when we want to run programs securely across hundreds of millions of computers and billions of smartphones. And that body of knowledge, it provided the foundation for the latest evolution in blockchain technology, something known as smart contracts. Now, back in 2015, an exceptionally bright 18-year-old named Vitalik Buterin decided that he wanted to create a new cryptocurrency that would be able to blend the assurance of the blockchain with the programmability of computer code. The way blockchains like Bitcoin had always worked to that point, human beings, or really programs that humans used, had to make changes in the blockchain. Buterin proposed creating a new blockchain that could host programs that could make changes to the blockchain. So this new blockchain, it wouldn't simply be a set of ledger entries like it is with Bitcoin. Instead, it's a set of computer programs, all of them running simultaneously. And to keep things safe, every one of these programs would run in its own sandbox so that one program couldn't interfere with or steal from another program. And Baterik called this proposed new blockchain Ethereum. 
Now, in our last episode, we discussed Ethereum as the first of a new generation of initial coin offerings, where individuals handed over their valuable Bitcoins for their as-yet-unproven Ether coins. And that project raised hundreds of millions of dollars and provided all of the support needed to get the Ethereum trading network up and running. Once it was up and running, people began to experiment with these new smart contracts. Let's take a look at the simplest example, an escrow contract. Now, if you're looking to buy a house, the homeowner will often ask you to put the payment into an account that is released to the homeowner after all of the sale conditions have been fulfilled. That account isn't controlled by you. It isn't controlled by the homeowner. It's known as an escrow account. And generally, these escrow contracts are drawn up by lawyers and the escrow accounts are managed by a bank. But a smart contract can be written into Ether, into the coins themselves. And the contract says, transfer this Ether when these conditions are met. And that's it. The program will run occasionally. It will check to see if the conditions have been met. And if so, it will transfer the coins. That all happens by itself, autonomously. Because that's what the code written into the coins tells the coins to do. Ethereum is smart money. It's money that can think for itself and act for itself. No lawyers had to write this escrow contract. No bank was needed to store the escrow funds. The contract was written into the coins, and the coins are stored safely on the blockchain until such time as the contract is executed. And Ethereum, it makes it cheap and easy to create these sorts of escrow contracts. And that's just the simplest sort of contract. Now, international trade finance, that's another area where contracts are very important. When you've never traded with someone on the other side of the world and you have no reason to trust them, how do you build enough trust to allow you to trade with them? You'd want a special kind of contract, one that releases payments incrementally. So much when the goods leave the loading dock, so much when they get loaded onto a ship, so much when they arrive at the destination point, and so much when they arrive at the receiving dock. At every stage along the way, the parties can both verify that the goods are where they're supposed to be and can execute the next stage of the trade contract. A smart contract like that allows both parties, who again have no reason to trust one another, to take things slowly and deliberately to build trust as they go along by building it into their smart contract. And again, no lawyers, no banks, just code written into Ether. And while that sounds hard to do, people have been working on tools to make it quite easy. There's one. It's known as Etherscriptor, and we'll link to that one on the website. It allows you to write your own smart contract simply by dragging building blocks together. The design of Etherscriptor is based on Scratch, That's a programming language they teach to nine-year-olds as an introduction to coding. Kids will soon be writing their own smart contracts. Maybe their first smart contract will be something they write with a parent, a smart contract that says their allowance is only released to spend when their chores are done. Or a smart contract that they can only add value to until it reaches a certain level and then it's released to them. And that helps a child save toward a goal. These kinds of things were very hard to do before smart contracts. Banks had to be involved. Often lawyers had to be involved. And now, now the money manages itself. And over the next billion seconds, kids will be writing smart contracts as part of learning about money. 
When we come back, we'll talk to someone building a business on a very simple kind of smart contract. So simple, it threatens to topple a half-trillion-dollar industry. there's any truism about gambling, it's that the house always wins. All of the games of chance are weighted ever so slightly in most cases in favor of the house. Now that's the deal. If you want to play the game, you have to accept those odds. Or do you? What if there's a different way to play games of chance? A way that leaves the house out of the picture. We've seen Bitcoin allow individuals to trade their currency without needing a bank or even a reserve bank to do it. Bitcoin deals the bankers out. Max Kenny reckons he's found a way to take the house out of gambling with his startup CryptoFlip. Max, welcome to Cryptonomics. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us, what is CryptoFlip? So CryptoFlip is uh, a peer-to-peer wagering platform. So... In its simplest form, it's matching players directly with each other with an equal chance of taking each other's money. So we're moving from from the house model to a platform model where we provide truly fair games of chance, skill, and sometimes strategy where players can match up at the same financial risk point and not have a house edge engineered over them in, in dictating who takes the pot. I've got friends that go to the casino um, and they seem to enjoy it. I think they they know when they go in, they know they're not going to have any money left afterwards and it's an experience for them Uh, and and that's fun. But there's also a lot of people there that, uh, you know, you walk through and you see them there staring at the screen all glazed over, just feeding $100 notes into the machine and they're hoping that the machine they're putting the money into is going to give them something back. Now, the machine is incentivized to not return any funds. It profits when players lose, and it's calculating the result before it shows the player if they've won or lost. So, there's a strong incentive there for the machine to do what it has to to win, and it provides zero transparency inside into how it's computing that that data, and there's just such an imbalance of power. So, you know, I thought, well, there has to be a better way to do this. All right, now, you're saying that you you basically have this peer-to-peer game, so you and I are going to play a game, and the game that you have right now is effectively just a coin flip, right? Heads or tails? That's correct, because it is the simplest uh, proof of concept where it's a binary outcome, and everyone's familiar with the notion of flipping a coin. Uh, We like it in that it is so simple it is going to have quite powerful uh, ramifications for its players. So with our model, we don't have to bankroll jackpots. So if someone comes in with $10 million worth of Ether um, and someone has the guts to match them, then in 30 seconds, when that coin flips, the winner is taking the other person's money. And how does the winner know that they've won and the loser know that they've, they've lost in a way that both parties can actually trust that outcome? Yeah, so, so that's exactly why we're using DLT, Distributed Ledger Technology, um, in that players don't have to trust a central authority on dictating the, the outcome that determines the winner. Um, and they also don't have to give us their money. So, 
sort of those are the two core functions that our smart contract uh, handles, where players commit their funds within the smart contract, uh, and that escrows them uh, for a short period of time on the main Ethereum blockchain. So that's not them giving us their money. We can't control it. We can't move it somewhere else. It's there. They can see it. Uh, and so can everyone else. Um, so the money is held there and then it, it waits for an outcome from a random event. The process through which that we generate randomness is we have one set of coins for this game. Uh, both coins flip and they have to both land on the same side to announce a winner. We let all players bet on the same pair of coins. The coins flip every 30 seconds. What they do is they aggregate all live wager data and then bind that with a randomly selected token holder seed. Um, so what that's doing is it's binding all of the player data together with almost a Powerball-like um, pool of tokens that we dip into um, and then we hash that data together and that that dictates a result for the game. And this result is, is I, I wouldn't say guaranteed to be perfectly random heads or tails, but it's going to be as close as you can get. Yes. So we're using something that's referred to as a commit-reveal uh, process between peers and that sort of make sure that each each counterparty can't sort of peek behind the curtain and and see what's going on with with the opponent's uh, data. At the same time, it prevents the the opportunity for miners to get involved and modify which block this transaction is is processed in, uh, potentially skewing the outcome. So there's a lot of factors that we have to be wary of when we process this data to make sure that the result we're serving up to players is truly random. Um, because that is notoriously difficult to do. So it's really interesting because the smart contract itself is just an agreement between you and I to, you know, that if, if the coin flip goes your way, you get the money we've staked. If the coin flip goes my way, I get the money I've staked. But in order to make all of the, that as simple as it is, there's actually quite a bit of structure underneath it that's more sophisticated. That's true, yes. To protect against... Uh, different attack vectors uh, that, that bad actors could look to manipulate in order to sway the game their way. So in some sense, that's always been the role. The role of the house has been to make sure within limits yes. that the game is played fairly for all the people who are coming to play. So you're having to implement all of this now in code. Yes, exactly. Uh, and it's all publicly verifiable. Um, so you can trace back any transaction through the blockchain um, to go back and reveal uh, the process through which we uh, came to the side of the coins. Um, so you're able to, to, to go back and uh, effectively it's transparent outcome determination, uh, which no casino is able to provide. Um, they all have uh, largely regulated uh, at certain points through time um, and, and verified pseudo-random number generators, um, which meet uh, the current uh, jurisdictional requirements for operating games of chance. All right. So what is that telling us then about the future of smart contracts? You have a very simple smart contract here that also now looks like it could threaten the entire gaming industry, which is a huge half trillion dollar industry or whatever it is. Will we see more very simple smart contracts threatening more industries than just gaming? I mean, in other words, are you the first of a wave of very simple smart contracts that show us that there's another way to do business? Yeah, so I think uh, gambling has long been one of the 
uh, earliest uh, and, in my opinion, best use cases for the technology. Because when you abstract away what's happening, we're taking out the middleman. Uh, there's, there's, there's documented history of people gambling in small sort of societal groups, uh, you know, 2300 BC. It's kind of funny that it, it's taken this long, but, you know, through time with the advent of technology, there was this middleman that was supposed to be improving the experience, making it more engaging and, and, and uh, adding a layer of trust. In my view, what's ended up happening is, is they've abused that power. Um, and we're now using a, a new emerging technology to bring it back to where it was, where, where it started, where it's two people matched up with an equal chance of winning uh, with no one there to mess around with what's happening. So in my view, this is one of the early cases of, uh, you know, you hear it quite a lot in taking out the, the middleman. Um, I think there are other instances where this could happen. Uh, and I think we're starting to see many of those uh, popping up. Max Kenny, thank you for joining us on Cryptonomics. Thank you very much for having me. Even a simple smart contract, a simple coin flip, heads or tails, that by itself can topple the entire world of gambling because you don't need the house. In fact, you don't want the house because the smart contract and the blockchain means you'll always know why you won or lost. It will always be completely transparent. And that's just what we get from a simple smart contract. Now, in some ways, this is very much like the early days of the web. We knew the web was useful, but we really didn't know how many things it would be useful for. It took 20 years to work out most of that, and we're still learning. We have a lot to learn. I've said repeatedly that lawyers aren't involved in writing smart contracts, but I reckon that's actually not going to be true in the long run, because I suspect the next generation of attorneys will look a bit more like computer geeks than the current generation. They'll be the folks writing smart contracts because they understand legal contracts, and because they'll be able to convert legal contracts into code. Far from seeing the end of the legal profession, smart contracts and smart money mean we'll have more contracts and more need for lawyers than ever before. When teenagers ask me what they should study in university, I generally advise that they study either finance and computer science in a dual degree or law in computer science in a dual degree because in the middle of these three fields, well, that's where smart contracts are going to live. The individuals who master those skills will be writing the smart contracts that will be telling money how to manage itself. And they'll be doing it with more than Ethereum. Just as with Bitcoin, people have taken the ideas behind Ethereum and copied them. There are several different trading networks that handle smart contracts. NEO and EOS, to name two, more are coming along because we're just at the beginning. We're going to see a lot of new ways of doing things. And we still have a lot to learn. That became painfully obvious in June of 2016 when the creators of the Distributed Autonomous Organization, the DAO, flipped the switch and started the massive program. Within a few hours, it became clear that there were bugs both in the code and in the underlying Ethereum network. We should have expected this. I asked a friend, a very, very capable programmer of smart contracts, what he thought of the DAO, and he answered me with a question. He said, Mark, what are the chances that in 6,000 lines of code, there are no bugs? And I can tell you, after a lifetime of writing software, the odds are basically zero. 
A bug in a regular computer program might give a wrong result. It might even crash the computer. But this bug, this bug allowed an attacker to siphon away $50 million in value before the creators of the DAO pulled the plug and stopped it. But it's a blockchain. You can't just erase that error. All of that money had already moved from one ledger entry to another. That's that, isn't it? The whole Ethereum community had a deep moment of reflection. The DAO had gone bad because of a bug in Ethereum. Okay, so they repair the bug. What about everyone who'd lost money? What would they do? Should they just accept the loss? The community got two proposals and put them to a vote. And the first proposal, it just recommended swallowing the loss, fixing the bug, going on as before. The second and far more radical proposal, it recommended deleting the blocks in the blockchain from immediately before the DAO went live. It was a proposal to turn back the clock, erasing records that theoretically can never be erased or changed unless there's consensus to do so. And there was. So although we all think of the blockchain as an immutable record of transactions, in actual fact, it's just like any other human creation. We can change it or unmake it or amend it to meet our needs. We rule it. It does not rule us. So they unwound the Ethereum blockchain and everyone got their money back. The DAO, however... The Dow never recovered. It was too much, too soon. We wanted to run before we could walk, so we fell flat on our faces. Now, that's okay. It's humiliating, but it's a learning experience. And with $50 million on the line, a learning experience not many will forget. But it tells us that we need to work ourselves into smart contracts slowly and gently. We need to learn. We need to experiment We need to feel comfortable because even the best minds are making huge mistakes right now. And again, that's okay. That's how we learn. Between blockchain and cryptocurrencies and smart contracts, we are rewiring and rewriting our entire financial system right now. It won't happen overnight. I don't even know that it will be fairly begun in 20 years. But within a billion seconds, things will be very different. Every part of the world that's touched by money will be changed. And it will all reorganize itself around the fact that our money is going to be smart. And we don't really understand a lot about that world. Even Max Kenny, who may be putting all of the casinos and slot machines and bookies in the world out of business, even he doesn't really know what that world looks like. So we need to be careful. We need to take things slowly. We don't want a bug to take down our economy. We already see people losing their life savings, making the wrong gamble on a cryptocurrency they didn't understand but did believe in. We've got to move beyond that. We've got to move into knowledge and understanding. Now, I have another podcast. It's called This Week in Startups Australia, and I recently interviewed Jason Calacanis. Jason is both an old friend and one of the most successful angel investors in the world. He was investor number three in a little firm called Uber. 
And when we talked about cryptocurrencies, he got a bit touchy because he sees people throwing good money after bad, never looking at the fundamentals, just chasing the dream, doing all of the things investors shouldn't do. He suggested there ought to be a course, a training program that might help you make better decisions around cryptocurrencies. And when I heard him say that, I thought, yes, that's what I want to do with cryptonomics. So here we are at the end of this 6,000-year journey from a ledger baked in clay to a smart contract written in Ethereum. That journey encompasses our own increasing capacity to count and keep track of and then trade all of the things in this world. And now we've given these tools the autonomy to keep track of themselves. So we won't be the only economic actors in the world a billion seconds from now. We'll be living and working in a world of smart people, smart machines, and smart money. And we can already see that world taking shape today. This is not a world that you need to believe in. In fact, don't believe in it. Don't take my word for it. Be a skeptic. Take none of this on faith. Go out there. Learn for yourself. Experiment for yourself. Have a play for yourself. Don't take any of it seriously. But learn how it works. Because these are the new tools. There's a really great quote that sums up this moment. First, we shape our tools then our tools shape us. And we're in this interesting moment where we're now, right now, shaping these new tools of cryptonomics. In a billion seconds, they'll just be the way things work. And the tools we create today, they will be shaping us and our world, the world of cryptonomics. If you want to learn more about the topics we've explored in this episode, or more about Max Kenny and CryptoFlip, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Matt Nikolic. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.